America and Obama's America are different kinds of things. Whoa. And, uh, yeah, well, okay. <laughs> That's an interesting comment. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, a Georgetown University law professor who teaches international law, national security, and constitutional law. Also with me is another FP columnist, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Finally, we have historian Robert Kagan, a best-selling author, columnist at the Washington Post, and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. I'd like to uh, begin to talk a little bit about American power from a different set of perspectives uh, than we did in our most recent conversation. Ray Odierno, the former Army Chief of Staff, was uh, quoted recently as saying that the U.S. Army is at its lowest point of readiness in history. Dick Cheney has just written a book called Exceptional, talking about the need to re-embrace the idea of American exceptionalism. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. I actually had breakfast with a sort of well-known proprietor of a well-known Washington kind of liberal icon. And he said, you know, I just read a really interesting critique of the Obama administration's foreign policy, and I agreed with a lot of it, but then I realized it was Dick Cheney making the critique, and therefore I started to distrust myself. But clearly, some things at play here with regard to American power, how it's used, America's role in the world, are we ready, are we pulling back? When I started talking about Odierno, you made a face, Rosa. No, I didn't. I, I saw I, I thought you I was making face, an Rosa. acknowledging face. You are acknowledging. Do you yes. agree with what he said? Well, if history uh, began five years ago, sure. Um, but, I, you know, if you're looking back to, say, you know, 17, the year 1780 or something, I think we would find plenty of moments in which the U.S. Army was not in a state of readiness that equals the state now. So that's, that's a rhetorical statement, obviously. He's talking about the severe budget cuts uh, of the last few years and the reduction in, in size, the reduction in strength of the Army. Um, and I think he, in a narrow sense, he's clearly right, you know, that if you, if you take an institution and you do a kind of ham-handed form of budget cutting and, and reduction of, of manpower, you're going to have an institution that cannot do as much of the stuff it used to do as it used to do. That's a totally separate question, obviously, and this is, this is the big and interesting question in terms of the military. It's a totally separate question from was the stuff that we had that bigger, richer army doing stuff that it is useful for the United States moving into the future to be able to do, or is there some other set of things that a different, whether smaller or larger, but different group of people in what we call the army might do? And, that, and that's a a question in itself. You know, I want to refer back to something that Bob said in, in, in an earlier conversation about uh, about Iran, for instance, and we were talking about Iran's interests haven't changed. And, and I was thinking about that whole concept of states having interests, right? And And I'm not sure that we in the United States right now know what our interests are. I mean, one might say, surely we have some, right, on some level, 
by definition, you know, if you want to get down to the most basic stuff, a state has an interest in surviving, and state has an interest in economic prosperity, and so forth. But but beyond that, really minimal stuff. I think I think our fundamental issue, which in turn colors our ability to have any coherence, and well, what do we want the military to do. Not only do we not know what we want to do in the Middle East because we don't know what our interests are in the region, we don't know what we want to do anywhere. I think as a nation, we're in the midst of a pretty significant identity crisis. And even if we do believe that somewhere deep down is this set of enduring interests, and it's simply that we haven't done a good enough job of pursuing them, um, part of the reason that I'm skeptical that, you know, Iran... It helps us to think about what Iranian interests are, is that I look at us and I think, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll come right out and say I think we've got our act together at least a little bit more than the Iranians do, and yet, boy, are we doing a crappy job of identifying our interests, much less acting in a consistent way to pursue them. How do we change that? Well, the, you know, this gets to, you know, a question um, of about a different kind of exceptionalism. And Bob, you're a historian. You've been reading and writing about presidents and foreign policies for a long time. You know, is Obama an exceptional president in the context of American presidents in terms of his view of the role of the United States? Is the United States at an exceptional period um, in our history where we seem perhaps or the president seems perhaps to embrace having a smaller perhaps weaker army, not having as many clearly defined international interests, not having an aggressive international agenda, having a heavy focus on our limitations, and a desire to embrace limitations and say these constraints can actually protect us from overreaching as we have done in the past. Is that a fair characterization? B, is that different from the past or are there similarities in the past? Well, I mean, it's a question of which past we're talking about. I mean, if you if you start with World War II, um, I would say every president uh, up through uh, George W. Bush, including Bill Clinton, Mr. Indispensable Nation, um, has believed that the United States has a central role to play in maintaining a certain kind of world order. That was sort of the lesson of World War II. That was the lesson of the 1930s, and then... It was sort of driven home and made overly simple by the, the existence of the Soviet Union, international communism. But it held over. I mean, if you look at George H.W.'s famous New World Order speech, which was given as part of the justification for pushing uh, Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, it was, we are the keeper of this world order. And by the way, getting back to what does Obama really think, Obama expressed this view also in his early speeches. Again, the Nobel Peace Prize speech, speech he gave at West Point, speech he gave to the UN. He himself has spoken of the United States uh, in that way. Now, so I don't know whether you, it's but, fair but to say... But exceptionalism is a little bit like God in American well, no, politics. We have, let's I'm be clear for, about it. Let's be, I love God let's, and let's, I love exceptionalism. Let's pull back on it. Let's let's dig into exceptionalism a little bit because this thing gets thrown around. It, it kind of drives me crazy. Um there's, there's, there are two things that are exceptional about the United States, but only one of them, it seems, I don't know, they're both sort of important. One is we're really the only nation in the world that has only an ideology. It doesn't, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a blood and soil nationality. Our whole nation is built around the principle of Declaration of Independence, which gives us a kind of universalistic approach to the world the way communism did, but at the end of the day, the Russians were Russian, not communist. But the Americans, there's no America without that. That's exceptional. Now, for most of our 
you know, for the first century, we didn't do much about that, so it didn't necessarily in impact our policy. Um, well, the we, other, we killed a lot of Indians. Not, yeah, not really on that basis. That was more about wanting <laughs> land. But anyway. Um, blood and soil. But here's the, here's the, there was blood and But here's one way in which the United States is exceptional. It's purely happenstance. It's a geographical and power exceptionalism, which, is allows a, which has allowed the United States to play a role which no other power in the world can play, which is a very powerful nation, unthreatened on its own borders, allowing it to deploy and maintain permanent deployments thousands of miles away in theaters that had known conflict consistently until the United States basically put a cork in those conflicts. I believe it is literally the case that no other nation could play such a role, whether anybody wanted to or not. It has been the acceptance of that role that has characterized American presidents up until now but, you know, when you talk about interests, you can't say that that is a traditional national interest. A traditional national interest is protect your borders. It's a national habit, have, not a national interest. No, I would say what the United States did and what I've argued is the United States took on an aberrational role after World War II, a role that no other country, including Great Britain, has ever undertaken. And therefore, it was, it, was, it, was, it was not a normal set of national interests. And my question has always been, when do Americans tire of that or say, wait a second? Because there were times in our history, the 1920s and 30s, where it didn't matter what happened in Europe. Hitler could be rampaging across the continent, and Americans didn't think it was their problem. Um, it's not as if that isn't in us. So the question is, have we made a turn more in that direction where, as Rosa says, we have no conception that this world order is the interest that we're upholding, and therefore why do we care about us? What, is, what, is, what are this NATO commitment? Can't these people take care of themselves? Why are we helping Japan? Can't Japan take care of itself? Well, the lessons that we painfully learned in the first half of the century, 20th century was, yeah, it turns out we really do have to if we can. We may have to learn those lessons all over again. It's, it's you know, people forget. So I want to take a whack at the how anomalous is President Obama, because I just finished writing a book, a history that starts in 1823 and ends in 1923, about the transition of hegemony from Britain to You're going to make States. Bob feel bad. The whole idea of finishing writing a book <laughs> is, is torture for him. Just, just, don't, just don't tell my wife you finished it. <laughs> and, and Rosa, by the way, is chuckling. She finished a book, too. <laughs> Show, off. Show off. I'm not hung up on this whole completion thing. <laughs> <laughs> you like ambiguity. So, it's a little so President Obama uh, does look very much like the normal ebb and flow in American politics. He does not look is he an out ebb or of a flow, Corey? And <laughs> he's he an definitely ebb? an ebb. <laughs> <laughs> Grover Cleveland refusing to move forward on the accession of Hawaii to the United States because we don't want to be an imperialist power. Uh, you know, so this is the first comparison I've really heard recently between Obama and Grover Cleveland. But I'd... <laughs> uh, Woodrow Wilson gets elected on keeping us out of the war in Europe. I think Americans periodically, there, there is a consistent tug between the universalism that is who we are as a political culture. We don't newly think our values are universal. We've always thought our values were universal. And as our power grows, we get more able to actually try and advance that in the world. But people get weary of it. 
They especially get weary of it when it seems hard. It's not successful. It takes a bunch of time. And so you have this ebb and flow. And and I think President Obama, he he is disappointing in the sense that he embraces as a virtue leaving the people of the Middle East to their sad fortune. But there are people out there listening to this going, yes, that's why I picked this guy. I don't want our people in the Middle East. I don't want us to get caught up in this stuff. Let's build roads at home. Let's build but schools. The Let's, dilemma, it seems why is to the me, world our problem? The dilemma that it seems to me that, that President Obama and so many Americans recognize that we're now caught in that, that is different from earlier moments in history is that it was it was possible to imagine at one point, you know, Fortress America, okay, you guys do what you want to do, we don't care. You know, and this is just stating the crushingly obvious that that the nature of uh, uh, global communications, transportation, the financial sector make that literally impossible now. And I think most Americans know that. And that doesn't mean they don't have their moments of total denial when they say, oh, shut the door, help, we don't want to, we don't want to think about it. But we all know that whether we like it or not, uh, the, the, the era in which we could imagine more or less going in alone is, is over. The question is then, what, what do we do about that? Do we, do we take this world out there? Do we try to control it in, by dominating it? Do we try to say, oh, power, what power? You know, we're just a little country just like everybody else and back away from that set of commitments. Do we try to find a different way to express and use the outsized power we have? And I, I think that's the, that's part part of, I do think, in fact, that you see with Obama, it's not an ebb exactly. And this is also something we talked about earlier. And Bob said there's some contradictions in President Obama's uh, uh, the way he talks, for instance, about the use of military force, he ebbs and flows himself. You know, there are moments when he's Mr. Ebb and he says, uh, you know, uh-uh, can't do it, can't control anything, can't predict anything. You guys go ahead without us. We're just going to get busy here at home. And then there are moments when he, he oscillates right to the opposite direction and sounds much more not like Wilson on the eve of World War I, but like Wilson at the end of World War I. And, and maybe that's inevitable, too. Maybe I mean, most of the debate on American foreign policy occurs within a very narrow band, and this is the thing. We always think we're having this mm -hmm. huge debate between complete <laughs> opposites, and That's it's not true, point. you know. Take the Iran mm -hmm. deal, for instance. Look, this was an act of American hegemony. Let, it assumes that it's our business whether Iran gets a nuclear weapon or not. Why? What is it our business? They're probably not going to fire it at us. But because we feel we have extended commitments, so that's so therefore it's our business. Second, what do we do? Okay, we didn't use force. We bludgeoned them with brutal economic sanctions, lowered their standard of living, probably made people hungry. We used our control of the international financial system to bludgeon them into this deal. That is an act of hegemonic behavior, which assumes, as I say, that it's our business, mm -hmm. that we have a right to do it. You know, you're ignoring the rest of the P5 plus one, right? I mean, you're I am ignoring it because <laughs> China and Russia would not have undertaken this at all on their own. And France and Germany couldn't have done it on their own. At the end of the day, it was the United States pulling all this together, using our influence with all these countries. It doesn't mean they didn't want to do it. In case of France and Germany, they probably did want to do it. But this was an act. So what I'm saying is, at the end of the day, you could look at this. Historians may look at this. Well, it was a tactic. We used He used economic sanctions to get this deal. Other people wanted to use force. We turn this into a kind of, you know, uh, you know, Manichaean struggle of foreign mm -hmm. policies. I'm not sure it is. Well, 
Let me give you an argument that it is. I don't know that it's Manichaean, but it's there are clear differences. And if the president of the United States is not predisposed to use force and he goes to the negotiating table, he's going to get a different outcome than if the president seems to be willing to use force. And if Obama is going in with the I'm less likely to move proposition, you get a different deal. I mean, am I wrong? Or May I just say that the single best critique of the Iran deal I have read in the last year was the 140 characters of David Rothkopf saying, I hope someday the U.S. negotiators want to buy my house. <laughs> Which reinforces your point, right? We were starting from the we're not going to use military force and therefore we need a deal instead of the starting point of the Iranian real has dropped by 40 percent in the course of the last year. They can't possibly get themselves out of this trench. I don't think the Iranians could assume early on that the Americans were never going to use force. We, I sometimes think we don't know what it's like to be the other guy. All we just think we're, we know what boobs we are. We know what bad negotiators we are. They live in a very scary world, if you think about it from their point of view. And one of the main elements of that scariness is American military power, which, by the way, would you bank on America never using military power after what you've seen over the past 25 years, not to mention the past 100 years? We use military power, we use military power more than any country in the world. Sure, we do. But America and Obama's America are different kinds of things. Whoa. And, uh, sorry. Really? Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> That's an interesting know. comment. Well, but, it, but, but it, even, it, it, well, it is because him. the behavior is different. Look, you, let me ask you another I, question. No, no, let me ask you a question. <laughs> no. Do you think Obama does or does not represent the basic sort of uh, average of American opinion about foreign policy? I don't. You think he doesn't? I think he does not okay. equal it. I think he equals a big group, uh, a group that is receding a little bit in the wake of the Iraq debacle. I think he, he represents a point of view set in time. Wait, characterize but, that group, though. Who is that group? Th th this is a group of people who said, Iraq was a mess, and I don't want to uh -huh. go back and do that kind of thing again, and I want to elect somebody who does, who's going to keep me from going and doing and, that and kind yet, of thing. And yet, and yet, Libya, and yet, ISIS, oh, Iraq, no, wait and yet the red line in Syria, and yet the red line in Syria. No, no, I, contradictory, Using absolutely. limited but force, getting in, yeah. getting out, defining to limit we, we got stuck right no, back in. in Libya, we got in and Lib we got out and it was a catastrophe. In Iraq, we got out, it's been a catastrophe. In Afghanistan, we've been edging towards the door the whole time, it's been a catastrophe. In Ukraine, it was very clear to Vladimir Putin that the United States was not going to use force. In fact, I would argue that we have a deterrence crisis around the world because a lot of people have done just what Joe Biden said. They looked at Barack Obama and they said, how far will he go? And they said, OK, that's the red line and I'm going to operate right under it. And amazingly, yeah. in Ukraine, well, OK, let me finish. <laughs> but in Ukraine, amazingly, Russia determined that they could actually invade a country after taking their insignia off right. and we would let that go. And China right. has deterred. Right. North Korea determined they could attack us, and we would try to find language that kept us from having to respond. So we called it vandalism. China attacks us via cyber into the, into the heart of the United States government, and the United States doesn't have a response. All these people are taking advantage of the fact that the United States is unwilling to deter hostile actions against us and our interests. I hate to take, I'm afraid I'm going to take a side that I would not normally take to point out that, A, when Russia invaded Georgia, not only did we not respond militarily, we didn't even respond with sanctions. 
under the Bush administration. That's we not did true. not sanction them. That's that's not exactly true. It's close three enough weeks, to being true. No, three weeks after they went into Georgia, Condoleezza Rice was in Warsaw signing a missile defense agreement, sending a message to the Russians oh, that on. we were okay, to, that would that happened. <laughs> and, and, I'm, I'm not and making it up. That obviously was a major deterrent. Obviously, All the, the other post-Georgia interventions go, were waived think, by the Obama administration within five months. Do you think this is the only president months. of the past 50 years that hasn't balked at using force, that hasn't gotten into something and then gotten out really quickly? No. Um, you no, know, when I'm Clinton just, went into, when Clinton pulled out of Somalia pretty I'm quickly not, after I'm Black I'm saying that no, world leaders... No, but you're trying to say this guy is special. I'm, I'm saying world leaders have gauged I don't where he will go and have determined um, that they can go and I, reap mayhem yeah. just below and that that's line. that's how Jack Kennedy got us into the Cuban Missile Crisis. Jack but, Kennedy was a lousy president. Okay, but I'm saying, but the question is, we have had lousy presidents. That's one of our hallmarks. So, okay. It is. Okay, guys. But is our longest <laughs> David, David, you were urging us to disaggregate. I, I, I knew when this conversation started, by the way, that I would be sitting here taking the tough, that the Clinton administration right. Democrat would be taking the tough anti-Obama post. But, and Kagan, who's like the deep, them. dark, right, neocon, evil, yeah. you know, Dr. Doom here, is defending Obama. But I think, I think, I think, two, two points. Yeah, thank that's you. How, I mean, just how contrary you both are. But, but, but several, I'll take the opposite side of any argument. <laughs> I think Russia and China screwing around with us is different from North Korea, Iran, et cetera, screwing around with us for the very obvious reason that, you know, for the exact same Cold War reasons, they know perfectly well that whether it's Clinton or Obama or Bush, that there is a limit to what the United States is going to do in response to having a very, very large, very, very powerful nuclear state mess with us. And and that so that that I'm not I'm not, I'm not actually going to blame Obama for that one. Um, but and I, I think of course you're right that there is a difference between the kind of limited uses of force that President Obama has shown a, a real enthusiasm for the the drone strikes uh, etc and the sort of full scale let's let's put 150,000 troops on the ground uh, kinds of uses of force. That being said though and I you know Bobby said it's a scary world for other people. It is a scary word for other people. If you are, if you are an individual leader, I'm not sure that you are comforted by the fact that we might not put 150,000 troops on the ground when you know perfectly well that we could and might decide to take you out. You know, so 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 I I think it is more complicated than that. I, I you know I in here I've been I've been very critical as well of the Obama administration for having a sort of flailing and incoherent and contradictory approach to the world. Factless. Factless. And for not even sort of trying to articulate a consistent set of interests and consistent set of approaches to achieving those interests. But that said, I, I'm not sure that you're not blaming the administration more than is fair for the tendency of lots of other states to be pushing us because I think some of our some of that pushing us is is not because of what Obama's done it's because it's because all states have less power right now and less power to respond in an effective way and you know smaller states are kind of feeling their oats and trying to see how much they can how far they can go and I do think that that's eternal right that's eternal so I'm not I'm not sure I'm going to blame him for that okay well I'm uh, I'm that I'm sure they're, they're relieved at the White House um, that we're letting him off the, <laughs> nah. the, the hook. <laughs> I don't think they're going to hire me. Uh, but, uh, Corey, everybody else has turned on me. Pick on the feckless host. Do you take a different perspective as well? 
No, I think you're right. I think you <laughs> undershot you. your criticism Thank by about 15%. Wow. 15%. <laughs> Oh, that's okay. <laughs> that's close enough. That's close enough. That's my, my book. Um, as 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 you look around the world, you know one of the the questions that 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 I think is critical here. I mean, there's Bob. You put your finger on the biggest question. What are our interests? You know, what are what do we have interests? Do we have a strategy? That's the that's the big one. And I you know I I I don't think we've figured them out. I don't think mm-hmm. we've had a good discussion. I don't think we've figured out a strategy on that. Um, but the other one, which seems to be at the core of a lot of this debate, is can we make a difference? You know, I you know I I I kind of sort of divide U.S. foreign policy. Um, thinkers, people who care about it, small group of people, but I divide it into sort of two fundamental groups. One group kind of sort of believes that more times than not when the U.S. intervenes overseas, it can do some good. And another group kind of sort of believes that more times than not when the U.S. intervenes overseas, it causes problems. And that is kind of the way the debate goes and I think Obama is in the latter group. Um, and I think that, you know, there has been this perverse result, which is we don't take action because we don't want to go down the slippery slope into the messes that those who are predisposed to take action, like the Bush administration was. And you get Syria and it deteriorates and you come up with excuses not to ask. And all of a sudden you've got a crisis that spreads into Iraq, into Lebanon, into Jordan, into boats on the Mediterranean, into Hungary. It's, you know, it gets worse and it gets worse. And that the, the, those who are predisposed not to act don't take sufficient consideration of the fact that inaction has consequences too. Absolutely. The 15% that I would have added to your criticism is that the president, you know, claims to read Reinhold Niebuhr, and yet he acts like there are no moral consequences to inaction. That we make mistakes on both sides of the line, and we typically make mistakes on both sides of the line by taking too little responsibility for outcomes. Either, you know, on the interventionist side, our heart's in the right place, we're trying to do the right thing, um, and and we do not realize that states have perennial interests and that people might not want the exact same things we want, or they might prefer their own imperfect creation to our excellence at it. And on the don't intervene side of the line, as showed, as Syria is showing now, not only is there a grievous moral weight to doing nothing, but there is also the practical effects of people are going to make choices that we are going to have consequences from as you see with Syrians fleeing the country mm-hmm. in such huge numbers. Well, can I pose a question to all of you? I mean, and this is something I've asked myself, and I don't, I don't, of course, really have any answer. Um, I mean, obviously, intervention, just, just as inaction is a form of action, intervention doesn't just have to be military and 150,000 or 500,000 troops on the ground, that we have enormous amounts of economic power, diplomatic power, cultural power, you name it. One thing I've always wondered about thinking about Iraq, going back in time uh, to, to 2003, um, we roundly and rapidly defeat the state military forces of Iraq. 
Uh, Saddam disappears. We haven't found him yet. He's, he's, you know, he's not sitting in his palace in Baghdad running stuff anymore. Um, we then, as we know, we, we make these, these two two things that turn out to be catastrophic mistakes, one of which is we disband the Iraqi army, the other is the sort of debathification. Um, next thing you know, uh, you know, we have created a whole bunch of really pissed off, well-armed, uh, well-armed, well-trained, you know, men running around. Um, and earlier when we were talking about Iraq, Bob, you were suggesting that we could, things could have been different had we been willing to make a greater commitment and staying longer. Here's the counterfactual. What, what if instead we had been more Machiavellian, even more Machiavellian, and said at that point, um, let's cut a deal with the guys who are one layer under Saddam Hussein, the guys who haven't fled yet, who are still there, in which we say, keep your damn army, you know, keep your damn bath party if you feel like it. Um, here's the deal. However, you know, here are, here are some actual red lines. You know, we are not going to pummel you. We are not going to take apart your country. In fact, we're going to turn around and go home, and we're even going to give you aid, you know, as long as you do the following. Now, goodbye now. Would it, you know, that, that, that wouldn't have meant, you know, uh, uh, sending 500,000 troops to keep the peace for 10 years. Uh, neither would it have been meant the, the disaster. So, question: Would would that have been better? Would that have turned out better? It would have. You would have created the second brutal Sunni mm-hmm. dictatorship because there was that was you're basically giving power to the same Sunni establishment that had been oppressing a majority Shia Except population. Except that they're now on notice that these really on are on notice red lines after we've left. I mean, weren't they that's on the notice problem. in 1991? You know, they're not. I, I, just I don't think know. I mean, that's it's our again. That would be, but we would have. Either turn that into a Sunni dictatorship, which would would be more or less effective, or we would have had the same civil war that we wound up with. I mean, anyway. I guess what I'm asking, you know, what's behind that question uh, is really: Are we being insufficiently a insufficiently imaginative and b insufficiently Machiavellian? Are we are we overly obsessed with the idea that our options are are blunt instrument or nothing? I feel like we that. Perhaps as a consequence of just how pervasive American power is in the post-war international order, we are allowing our non-military skills to atrophy. Like the muscles are literally atrophying to think about creative ways that don't require 500,000 troops. And maybe for me the Iraq example that we too little pay attention to is the way the Kurdish area was Mm -hmm. preserved and protected and emboldened and liberated after the 1991 Mm -hmm. war. I mean, if you think about, you know, we took a third of Saddam Hussein's country away. We created a safe area for the people there. We provided aid. We let a leadership grow in that area that is now showing itself to be extraordinarily capable of holding its own against the threats we're worried about, about providing for itself. Think about if we had taken an approach that creative to Syria. Well, or, or, or you're a historian, Bob, and, and I'm not, but, but thinking about Japan and Germany after World War II, we cut deals like crazy with all sorts of war criminals, you know, that we didn't try to entirely break apart No, it's, the... not about, it's not about doing things that are distasteful. You can do things that are distasteful, and you may have to, but it's about, it's about what's the power equation in the country mm-hmm, after you mm-hmm. leave it. And yeah, if you've yeah. attempted to change the power equation... Uh, and then you pull out. If the if the power equation is what it is, then you get back to your same problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that that really was a viable option. I never heard anybody suggest. It's easy to say in retrospect we, we shouldn't have done this and we shouldn't mm-hmm. have done that. But I don't know what a better option would have been. Now, 
the better option, in my view, was to understand, uh, you know, as Colin Powell said, that we own that place. I mean, we, it, it, we, you know, once we'd gone in, we went in too light. We didn't go in with 500,000 troops, as it happens. Right, right. And then we were, we were looking for the exit, which is typically American. I mean, ironically, the Bush administration behaved like every other administration. You started looking for the exits the moment mm -hmm. you got out. Unfortunately, and no one wants to hear this, the most successful American interventions of one are ones where we kept some level of forces in place for years and years and years and even decades. I mean, the Philippines was a total disaster. If you want to go back historically, the Philippine War from 1898 to 1902. Ultimately, we got it under control. And we kept 13,000 American forces in the Philippines for the next 30 years. Americans didn't even know they were there. You know, we still have troops in the Balkans. I'm sure Americans don't know that. We still, do we still have troops in the Sinai? I think we. I think we still have maybe troops in the a, Sinai. Maybe there's a small yeah, group. We you do. know, we do. Th there is this assumption yeah. that you say, "Oh my gosh, we we're not going to be able to leave." Well, I think at a relatively once you'd gotten Iraq Nobody under control. Nobody cares if we stay as long as they're not getting killed. Exactly. Once you'd gotten Iraq under control, assuming you could get Iraq under control, as it was roughly under control, I think in 2010, let's say. Um, it would have required a, a relatively small uh, stationing of forces, I think, to keep it there, in precisely mm -hmm. to make the point that you wanted to make, which is, don't forget, we're still here, mm -hmm. you have to stay in line. It's when you, it's our desire to get out right. as soon as we're entering, which is consistent. But, you know, getting back to your, your original point, I mean, on the, it is both sides of the intervention argument are right. America can do some good, and it all, and sometimes it doesn't do. Uh, it doesn't. It isn't effective. You know, it's almost by definition all the interventions that we undertake are world order management interventions. They are not all or nothing, repelling invasions against us or conquering another country like in World War One, World War Two. I would say order management interventions, by definition, are inconclusive, mm -hmm. messy. Um, and not likely to have a, you know, job well done sign posted at the end of them. They are... Well, you can't, you can't, you, you know... The question is, are we willing to undertake those things despite that, and despite knowing about the imperfection of our ability to do these things, and what is the consequence of not doing it? And for me, there's no, like, well, we should always be intervening versus we should never be intervening. Um, it's a question for me of whether we're leaning forward or leaning backward. If you're leaning backward too far, too many bad things can happen. If you lean forward too far, you can get yourself in, in, in trouble as well. It's, a, it's, it's not an easy question to answer, but that's the balance. No, no, and I think, look, I think at the end of the day, you know, you're right in the first instance. It's not a Manichaean choice. We, we tend to operate in a small band. It tends to be leaning in or leaning out. But there are some lessons that go with that. And one of the lessons that goes with that is you can't win a war in a half-assed way. You can't manage the right. peace in a half-assed way. You've got to commit to doing it. You've got to commit to doing it over a period of time. You have to commit to risk. You also have to acknowledge that some of the time your options are lousy options, and you have to pick one of the lousy options. It's amazing how we're unable to learn these lessons. Right. Well, <laughs> and yet those these are the absolute clear lessons. I, there is another lesson I've learned, which is that we can only go on a certain length here uh, of time because people listening to podcasts listen as they're driving home 
uh, from work or jogging, and and they but can the good only news do is that. that here in Washington D.C., that could mean hours. That and could hours mean hours, and hours. <laughs> right? And we've 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 taken advantage of that. But I think I'm thinking of somebody on a treadmill who's just keeping going for the end here, be and so who much dies. They... There will be blood. There will be blood on our hands if that happens. So I want to thank you for for this, and I hope this conversation continues in future sessions, because the world is a mess, uh, and it's our job to figure out how to clean it up. Thank you very much. (laughs) You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us. (laughs) 